Uh, just before I walked up here, my son leaned over and said, your sermon looks light today. And if you look at the title, that's, if you look at the title, that's because it says some basics about sin. I didn't make an entire list of every one of them that we could have found, guys. Uh, we're going to look at some basics. I haven't spent any time talking about specifically just the topic of sin. Uh, and I wasn't originally planning on, on looking at this lesson today, but I went back and read an article uh, and based off that article, I thought maybe it would be a good idea to come back and do a refresher. Uh, and so we're going to spend a little bit of time, but we're going to start off this morning before I get into the scriptures of actually giving you a quote from a website. Uh, and again, just to let you know and anybody that's watching this online, clearly what I'm going to quote to you is not in alignment with the scripture, and that's why we have a need for a sermon such as this. Let me give you the quote. I receive a lot of emails from readers who are very worried about what's going to happen to their immortal soul when they die. They all believe that they have transgressed against God in some way, and they believe it will relegate their soul to hell or eternal damnation. It pains me to know that there are people who believe that anything they do while incarnated on earth can cause them to lose God's love. It's not possible. Source, in quotation marks, or God, does not judge your actions. Source is unconditional love. There's no punishment for your earthly transgressions. There is no hell. The idea of sin is a man-made concept. Fear of going to hell was how clergy controlled people's behaviors back in the day. Men invented sin to control the masses. Does that mean you can go out and murder, rape, and pillage to your heart's content? Well, you've always been able to do what you desire uh, while incarnated on earth, but every choice you make has a natural man-made consequence. Laws were made to deter people from doing things that cause chaos in society. And so if you murder someone and get caught, you'll go to prison. People ask if people aren't afraid of going to hell, what's going to deter them from hurting other people? And to that I reply, their conscience. They go on and then say this, I grew up without any sort of religion and I'm not out there hurting people. I don't need a book or a sermon to tell me not to hurt people. I treat others how I want to be treated. Let me pause for a second. I wonder where they got that at goes on, and that, that's with kindness and compassion and care. I don't have to hold back some innate desire to kill someone because a book or a man in a robe told me I'll burn in hell for eternity if I did. Now listen closely. You either have a conscience or you don't. So when you die, even if you have committed atrocities, your soul goes to the same place everyone else's soul goes to. And that may not seem fair, but it's simply how it is. End of quote. I read that and I began to sit and really think about where this person was coming from. They have some really unusual views, but as I began to think about this, the thought process in general, I would say is very normal thought process for our culture. Now here's just some very quick issues I saw right off the bat as I began to read this person's thoughts. One. This person who wrote this article does not believe in sin, which rejects the idea of absolutes. However, we have absolute natural law even within the world we live in. So again, this is completely contradictory. We have absolute natural law, yet they teach there is no such thing as an absolute. It's contradictory. They talk about God and they talk about where our souls go, but then they say that they don't believe that there is a judgment, but to not believe in any type of a judgment with there being a God or something afterwards means to believe that all people are judged acceptably 
which that's the only logical consequence you can have. If everyone's going to the same place and you say there's no judgment, well, that is a judgment in and of itself with no standard. Again, it's contradiction. The person goes on to say that people who don't do bad things have a conscience, but people who do bad things or commit atrocities, as they say, don't. Again, that is a contradiction. Uh, you, can't have, you can't have man in general and say some people have a conscience and some people don't. It's a contradiction. The person says that her statements may not seem fair, but that assumes that there is some type of a system of judgment based on a standard. Again, it is contradictory. Now, this is just one of the articles that I read this week, and I wasn't looking for this. I just came upon it. But as I began to think about it as a whole, the culture around us and even uh, many who claim to be Christians seem to be in often regard uh, confused about sin, judgment, what occurs with the soul, all of those issues we find here. But the Bible has a whole lot to say about those topics, and it does so without contradiction. So what we're going to do is spend just a little bit of time talking about some basics about sin. And with the culture around us and with everything that we see, it's a very good thing for us to continuously go back and to review these basic fundamental tenets of the Christian faith. So let's go on over to Romans chapter 7, and let's notice what Paul says as he writes to the church in Rome. Now again, whenever you read Paul's writings, and I would say Romans here is a treatise on faith, and Paul lays things out very logically, really as in, as in treatise, a treaty form. And he answers the questions as he lays them out. He says, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin but by the law. For I had not known lust except the law, the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. But sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. For without the law sin was dead. For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. And the commandment which was ordained to life, I found to be unto death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it slew me. And wherefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just, and good. Was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid. But sin, that it might appear sin, worketh death in me by that which is good. That sin, by the commandment, might become exceeding sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. Paul begins to lay out for us as you read through the book of Romans a basic concept or study on sin in and of itself. And every one of us who is here struggles with sin. Uh, even those who would proclaim to love Jesus Christ and to be a follower of Christ would have to admit that they struggle with sin. We all understand how sin works. It is extremely dangerous. It begins within our minds, and it begins to permeate into our lives. And Paul here illustrates that the law is pointing out what sin is. It's not sin in and of itself, although many today would look at God's laws as being basically sin of Himself. He points out that you can't know what sin is apart from God's law. Now again, He's going back to this standard for the basis of morality, for the basis of judgment. Notice there's always the standard. Well, in Romans 7, 7 through 14, he begins to discuss how sin actually takes advantage of God's law. Now, when, when he says that, what he's saying is, is we, as those who commit sin, take advantage of God's laws. They want to go out and they want to sin. 
that produces evil desires, even when we know exactly what God's say, and even when we understand what the Bible says we, we can or cannot do. And Paul goes on and he breaks it down and he says that sin literally deceives you, and then ultimately it kills you. However, he points out, and he's obviously correct, it is the law itself which helps us to understand the sinfulness of sin. The same thing when we begin to look at, for the most part, man-made laws, right? For those in, in our culture and those around us who may not have any idea about morality or a standard, there are certain basic tenets that they are told by the law they cannot do, right? Can't go out and murder people and things like that. Well, how would they know that it's wrong? Well, they have the law. Of course, God's law trumps man's law, but we understand it in both situations. Unfortunately, you have those today who would profess some type of a system of morality, but they don't have an understanding of really what sin is. So let's talk for just a few seconds about sin and the actuality of sin. Sin is a reality. People today don't like to, many of them don't like to believe that. But to deny the existence of sin in general or just a specific sin, which even Christians are guilty of doing, that's a pretty common problem. Again, some deny that there is anything such as sin at all, that there's no absolute morality, that there is, there is nothing that you could do that would, uh, would cause God to turn His back on you. There are certain groups that teach things like that. Then there are others that would say, I do accept that there is the idea of sin, but I don't accept that this is a sin or that this is a sin. Let me give you one example. And again, when I, as we were talking in Bible study this morning, and it was mentioned there's nothing new under the sun, Many of the things we find recorded in our scripture really sounds like the environment we live in today. Listen to Proverbs 30, verse 20, because here we have an example given of someone who's really denying that something is wrong. Proverbs 30, 20, Such is the way of an adulterous woman. She eateth and wipeth her mouth and saith, I have done no wickedness. Proverbs 30, 20, and we could look at a lot of other verses, really shows an example of a person who is clearly out committing sin, but yet they will look at their acts and they will not acknowledge that what they're doing is actually sinful. Now again, sounds an awful lot like the author that I quoted from earlier who talks about there is no such thing that could cause you to, to lose your soul in hell, that there is no such thing as sin. And guys, if you think about it and you break it down to the culture around us in general, uh, culture today is promoting many different types of things that are sin. And the people will say exactly like you find in Proverbs 30, 20, I've done no wickedness. Right? To them, it's not a problem. They don't think it's wrong. Again, what we find all throughout, not only even our Old Testament, but also within our New Testament, is that man in general oftentimes will clearly reject the will of God. And many times they will even do it and look at what they've done and walk away with that same idea of, I've done no wickedness. We're surrounded by it, and yet, even though they do not think it's a reality, sin is a reality. Now, there's a lot of ways we can deny sin, so I'm going to do a real quick review of some of those methods. Let's talk for just a second about the sins of transgression. What exactly are we talking about? This is very clearly when we transgress one of God's standards. Let's go over to 1 John 3, 4. 1 John 3, 4, and it says, Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law. Now, you've got to pause for a second. Well, what law are you talking about? Well, we're talking about the inspired scriptures, the inspired law that was given to us. A lot of people don't think we're under law today. Specific groups think we are not under law. 
But we are under the law of Christ. We are under the perfect law of liberty. It's given many different names. We're told we'll be judged by that law. Uh, and so certainly we are under law. John says, as he records here, 1 John 3, 4, Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. Now, when we go back and we look at our inspired scriptures, the law teaches us as followers of God that there are many things that are sinful. Okay? Don't take this the wrong way. There isn't any sin that is any worse spiritually than any other sin. They all have the same result. But let me just give you a couple of quick ones without going through and making the list. What would be some common sins today? Well, let's use the big ones. These are the ones people would often say, those are really bad. You've got people who would be committing fornication. You have people who would do things like committing adultery. You have people who would go out and do things like stealing, or they would continuously be living a lifestyle where they're uh, a drunkard and they're intoxicated. Many as Christians follow His instructions and we're considered righteous, and when we fail to follow those instructions, we are looked at as being unrighteousness or in unrighteousness. Now you say, can you define unrighteousness and righteousness a little bit better? Yes. Here's the standard of God. There's the law. And on both sides, you either fall to the unrighteous side or the righteous side. It's like if I get pulled over out here on the road driving 75 and a 35, and the officer says, uh, the standard is 35. You can't go beyond that. Well, I violated the, or transgressed the law. Therefore, I fall on the side of unrighteousness, right? Very simply to understand. If I'm going below that, I fall on the side of righteousness or I'm in alignment with the law. Okay, So that's what we're talking about when we talk about sins of transgression. Don't go commit adultery. Don't go out and fornicate. Don't go out and steal. Whatever those things are. When we begin to follow or refuse to follow those laws, we are transgressing the laws. Now again, the author that I quoted from above uh, described this as either having a conscience or not having a conscience. Now, let me address that for just a second. Uh, because, again, that author is clearly mistaken. Uh, there has to be a standard for somebody's conscience to be convicted. The conscience is, is, is affected because the standard has been uh, transgressed or it has been violated. Okay? The person's not unrighteous simply because they violated their conscience. They are unrighteous because they violated the standard. The person that I quoted from basically said, hey, you know, whatever you do or don't do, that's based solely on your conscience. Well, the Bible teaches very clearly, I'm not a sinner because I violate my conscience. I'm a sinner because I am violating the standard. And so they've not really laid a whole lot of, of thought process out to their argument. If everyone can do whatever they want based on conscience, then you have to go back and look at atrocities, which will probably get flagged on YouTube for this. But, you know, you look at things such as, Hitler and mass genocide of an entire people, if I hold her stance, how can I come back and say, well, I mean, it's not clearly wrong, he just doesn't have a conscience. It's not his fault. So again, it's not laid out logically. The Bible lays this out very logically. You do have a conscience, and your conscience is going to be based on whether or not you transgress the standard. Okay? Listen to 1 Corinthians 6, 9-10. through 10. Know ye not that the unrighteousness or that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers. Uh, this isn't so much for you guys, but if somebody's watching this online, uh, the word there, effeminate, uh, how do I, very carefully I'm going to say, uh, effeminate is the male passive 
partner in a homosexual relationship. Nor abusers of themselves with mankind, you have the opposite side there, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. Simply put, what we learn here is any transgression of God's law, whether it affects your conscience or whether it does not affect your conscience, is sin. Now here's the problem. Uh, we learn very clearly that sin is going to cause you to not inherit the kingdom of God. And yet in our culture today, uh, and guys, we have to admit, even within the church of Christ and even within those who would be faithful Christians, many, peop many people have a conscience which is based on the wrong standard. Now, so as we lay the, the, the foundation here for sin, we've already shown, yes, there is an absolute standard. Yes, our conscience has to be based on that standard and or it will not be affected. What will that lead me to do? To participate in all different types of activities that will cause me to not inherit the kingdom of God. That's a very simple way to break that down, okay? Hopefully it comes across as simple. So sins of transgression are just one of those methods. And then you have sins of omission or of neglect. Now I could use a few different verses for this, but I'm going to jump off from James 4:17. Uh, Therefore to him that knoweth to do good, and doeth it not, to him it is sin. Now, this also ties into scruples, and I'm not going to spend any time today talking about scruples. Uh, but James's point here, as we talk about those who know to do good, even though we have the whole other side of scruples there, there are those people who would know that there are certain things required of them, and they will omit or they will neglect to do those things, right? And they will act like it's... For example, let me just give one. Uh, the, I don't think there's any faithful Christian who isn't attending worship on a regular basis, right? We understand if you get sick, you're not going to be here. But there are a lot of people who would say, well, I'm a Christian and, and I, don't go, I don't go to church, right? I don't assemble with the saints. They omit service on worship service on the first day of the week, right? They neglect going to that. And so sins of omission or neglect... Uh, they, fall, they do fall into areas, again, that may be considered scruples. They also fall into other areas. Uh, this would include also when we don't say things that we know we should have. When somebody's doing something and we don't stand up and say something, I'm omitting or neglecting to take my part to warn the wicked of their wicked ways or to come back and to rebuke and try to set back a Christian who is walking into sin. Again, those are additional commandments. I'm not going to give per verses on those, but we all are familiar with uh, church correction and how we are to interact. That would be when I see something taking place and I refuse to stand up and let them know. I, st I refuse to stand up and stop that, to correct that brother or sister. And even within society, within culture, in my secular workplace, when I get the opportunity and somebody is talking about something that is sinful, if I have the ability to be able to bring that up and try to correct that, even though they're not a, a Christian, they're not going to become a Christian unless they have an understanding. So I have to try to find a way to, to bring that up, right? How can I discuss this uh, really without getting fired, right? What kind of question can I ask them to get them to return and ask me a question that I'm allowed to then answer? So there are times when people will just be quiet or, you know, when they refuse to do something that needs to be done. What would be an example? Well, I've got somebody within a congregation. They're not faithful. I understand exactly what the Bible teaches about church discipline, but I am going to refuse to carry out church discipline because I don't want to cause a problem. I'm just going to omit or neglect the fact that I have an erring Christian, which James 5, 19 through 20, 21 makes it very clear. I've got to draw them back, right? I've got to teach them. I'm not going to do that. 
So there are a number of examples we could talk about, but there are sins of transgression. There are sins of omission. There are sins of neglect. Listen to Matthew 23, 23. Here's a good example, and I think it's fitting for culture in general around us. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. These ought ye to have done and not to leave the other undone. Well, the scribes and the Pharisees were pretty interesting. They didn't have a problem doing the things that they wanted to do and carrying out certain portions of the law of Moses. However, they were neglecting some of God's laws. It would be like the person who would not uh, carry out church discipline, right? I'm going to do the things that I like. I'm not going to do the things that I don't like. And clearly they were doing that. Jesus makes it very clear to them, you need to do all of them. This isn't a buffet table where you pick some and you leave others. Okay? You can't transgress or neglect God's laws simply because you don't like them. And yet, you will find a number of people who will do that. And you'll find even other groups who will... Uh, who will try to say that they're not even sins in and of themselves. And so that's another discussion as we talk about sin, and we touched on it briefly. But we can't simply go out and, and pick and choose what we're going to transgress or neglect. Jesus makes it clear all of them are, are required. There are also sins of thought or emotion. I think sometimes these are probably the hardest for us as Christians really to get under control or to correct. And the reason is is because... Oftentimes, these are the sins that take place within my mind, and nobody else knows that I'm doing it. And because they don't know that I'm doing it, I don't have a faithful brother or sister in Christ coming up next to me saying, Hey, I realize you're struggling with, and because they're not approaching me to help me deal with it, because they don't know, and because, guys, I'm too embarrassed to tell anybody that I need help, which is a serious problem, we continue to struggle with these different types of sins of thought and or emotion. Let me give you one. Lust. There's just one. Matthew 5.28 Jesus says, But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. I'm not going to go back and give you the statistics. I started to go back and actually uh, I looked up some of the statistics on this. And uh, guys, it was, it was pretty bad. Um, and, and many of the reviews or the polls and, and so forth that I looked at, you had people saying, This isn't a problem whatsoever. This doesn't affect, this doesn't affect me personally. It doesn't impact my marriage. Uh, me viewing these types of things, and they don't call it lust, obviously, but this isn't a problem. But here's, here's the thing. It's not enough for me to physically commit uh, adultery on my spouse. For me to go out and to think that as one flesh, it's okay for me to, to not be both mentally and physically uh, one flesh with my wife is completely contradictory, right? You look at the current polls, and they will say this isn't harmful unless, unless you lust X amount time right then at that point now it starts to getting into problematic level it's problematic no matter how much none of it is is acceptable you're not you're not supposed to do any of it adultery starts in the mind as with every other sin before it ever starts physically and so we get the warning I can't think I can sin just a little bit and as long as I don't take it too far I'm gonna be okay because guys as you all know when you start to sin it's a progression that just keeps on going it's not gonna stop right there I'll actually touch on that a little bit later. How about envy? People who are envious. What, really what it boils down to is, is oftentimes they want what other people have simply because they don't have it. Listen to Titus 3.3. 3. For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. 
I could spend a lot of time talking about envy. Very simply put, why is envy so bad? Envy is the complete opposite of contentment. Nothing wrong with, with me, let's say, for example, uh, I'm outgrowing the house, so I have more kids, and I need a bigger house, right? And buying a bigger house because I need it and can afford it, that's totally different than me being envious of every single thing everybody else has and me wanting to have is keeping up with the Joneses. Do they use that phrase anymore, or am I just maybe getting old? Used to call it keeping up with the Joneses, right? That's what envious is. How about pride? We're talking about <laughs> biblical pride here. We're talking about the lack of humility, not how other people might use this term. 1 John 2.16, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Pride is the complete opposite of humility. It is a precursor to virtually every sin that I can think of. And when I say pride is a precursor, what I'm saying is, is this. It is pride which allows me to transgress the laws of God and think that there will be no consequences. It's, it's pride that allows me to go out and to blatantly do what I know the Bible teaches I ought not to do. Okay, And even within, and I'm not going to touch... Uh, touch on Paul's as he talks about the Gentiles, even within the people today who do not claim to be Christians, they understand there are things they ought not to be doing. They know that it, 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 just, it is not logical, it's not acceptable, it's not moral, and yet they will come out and do those things, and they'll preach and scream and yell about how they have pride. And again, guys, that is the pride of thinking that they can do those things and there, there will be no, there'll be no consequences. Well, there will be. Let's talk about how sin destroys relationships, and it does it in a lot of regards. First, let's talk about our relationship with God. Let's talk about the follower of God and sin. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2. And remember, this is written to those who were followers of God. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither is ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities, that word sin, your sins have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid His face from you that He will not hear. Nobody can live in active sin and claim to be acceptable to God. I find people that do it all the time. Uh, like you, if you've read through some of their articles, you've even read where they, they try to lay out scripturally how you can do whatever you want, commit atrocities, and you're not going to go to a bad place. As a matter of fact, all souls go to the same place. I just read you an example of that. Uh, but all sin destroys one's relationship with God. Sometimes it, it keeps one from ever having a relationship with God. We're talking about the, those who are not Christians, right? They, may never, they never, uh, may never obey the gospel simply because they're going to continue to be involved in sin, and that sin will constantly keep them from ever submitting to the, to the will of God. And so sin certainly destroys our relationship with God, and it will keep many people from ever having a relationship with God. Sin also can destroy one's relationship with others. Now listen to 1 Corinthians 15.33. I'm going to actually read from the uh, MLV version just because it does a much better job translating this. 1 Corinthians 15.33, Do not be misled. Evil associations, or the ASV would say companionships, evil companionships correct virtuous or good morals. Right? Uh, have you guys ever noticed that righteousness doesn't have any part with unrighteousness? It's not supposed to. Again, it is the idea, and I know people don't like this, but when you say evil 
associations corrupt good morals or virtuous morals. We've all talked about the test of fellowship within the church, right? Uh, fellowship with fellow brothers or sisters in Christ. Guys, I have to go and say, and people, probably, people would probably not like what I'm going to say here. There is even a test of acquaintanceship within the world, right? We have, a, we have a test of those we associate or we fellowship who are brothers and sisters in Christ, but this carries over even into the world that we live in. And when I say a test of acquaintance and or... I deal with a number of people uh, within my work, my secular workplace, and there are certain people I avoid for a number of reasons, right? I have some that I talk to on a regular basis. They're good moral people. Uh, they're not going to suggest or do things that would cause me to get involved in sin. And I have no problem uh, associating with those people, um, you know, in the, daily, in the daily activities. But there are other people that I'm not going to be around or I limit to the best of my ability to be around them for a number of reasons. Uh, and so it's very clear when you begin to look at the Scriptures, evil associations, being around people who do evil things, oftentimes corrupts virtuous morals. How long is it going to take before I can be surrounded by that before I do not start to partake in? It's, it's a dangerous concern for me. I even, you know, even now, sometimes I'll see myself doing something. It's like I, would have, you know, I wouldn't have done that before, or I would have used a different way of speaking, or we see that it happens, and it happens. How did God's people get led astray so many times? We oftentimes find ourselves bringing themselves into alignment with marrying, intermarrying with, with the Gentiles, and then they're... They're surprised that their children have gone off into something else besides following God. It happens all the time. So sin can destroy one's relationship with another. Here's another one. It certainly affects our relationship with ourselves due to affecting our conscience. Now I'm going to read from Romans 13.5. And in context here, he's talking about how we should submit ourselves to our governmental leaders. But um, we have one leader who is higher than governmental leaders, and there's a submission to them. And this holds true to that also, even though he, in context, is talking about governmental leaders. Listen to what he says in Romans 13, 5. Wherefore, wherefore ye must needs be subject, not only for wrath, but also for conscience sake. Yes, I certainly have to adhere to the laws of the land if they do not contradict God's laws, and I do that for conscience sake. However, there is a law that, that precedes that and uh, is much more important. And again, I would follow those for matters of conscience sake. There are even other things as you start to get into the idea of scruples where I will do certain things again for conscience sake. And we've, we've touched on that before where I may have a, I may have a conscience issue and I'm not going to bind that on you. So for example, I don't, but if I had a conscience issue with putting a Christmas tree in my house and giving gifts to my family on, on uh, a certain holiday. Uh, if I have a problem with that, then I'm not going to put a Christmas tree up in my house, right? And I'm not going to come to your house and land blast you for putting up a Christmas tree, but I'm not going to put it up, right? I have a conscience issue in that area, my, my own scruple. So we have to be very careful when we begin to think about what is my standard for sin and what's it based on? Because when I violate that standard, I'm going to cause a conscience issue Sometimes it carries over into things that are not actually sinful at all, and yet for me, I think, like eating meats, I know we don't have a shanty down here at the Logan, local pagan temple down there where I can buy you know, meat offered to idols, but for some people they can't do that, and for others they can. We all know that there's no such thing as an idol. 
I'm going to go down and get the discounted meat. But if you can't do it, don't, okay? But whatever my conscience is based on as far as a standard or sometimes even misbased on due to my own conscience issues, we realize that when we violate that standard, we are going to cause issues within ourselves and within our own conscience. And let me give you a little secret, guys, if you didn't already know this. Uh, knowingly living in sin is a weight which leads to a number of issues. Issues as, as we even started to touch on this morning in Bible study, things such as alcoholism, uh, drug abuse. Uh, it, it leads into a number of areas where people will do just about anything to try to stop or to get over whatever this conscience issue is that they have. I would go so far as to say that a number of people, this is a general, number of people who are who are taking uh, who are seeing a counselor not all okay, not all the time guys but a lot of people who are seeing a counselor a lot of times they're dealing with the fact that they are struggling with conscience issues right sometimes it's not sometimes it's something totally different but there are a lot of people who are dealing with conscience issues and they don't know how to deal with that let's talk about what sin requires from us it requires an awful lot matter of fact our energy our time it also requires submission of my conscience. If I'm going to continue to live in sin, I'm going to spend my time doing it, I'm going to spend my time thinking about it, and I'm going to force my conscience to allow me to do it, whether I lie to myself about the fact that it's okay uh, or whether I try to convince myself that it's not a sin at all. Uh, it's, going to, it's going to require an awful lot. And I think most people here who have ever committed a sin, and we all have, especially when it was something that we struggled with, we realize just how much it takes. Listen to 2 Peter 2.19. While they promised them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption, for of whom a man is overcome, of the same is he brought into bondage. There are an awful lot of people who will promise you liberty and that you can go out and do whatever you want. You can follow your own desires and your own wants. And they'll make you think that it's okay. I guess what I would say is this. Sin has never ever and it will never ever lead to liberty. A lot of people walking around right now talking about you should be able, you should be at liberty or free to do whatever you want. We should all be equal and at liberty or free to do whatever we want. Uh, sin never leads to liberty. It always leads to bondage. If you don't believe me, go ask the alcoholic who can't quit. If you don't believe me, go back and ask the person, and I was looking this up this week as I was just doing statistics. You go up and ask the person who is addicted, for example, to pornography, and I was reading a, a, an account where a guy said, I lose hours a day where I'm sitting on the computer just looking at things I ought not to be looking at. And I'm investing all this time. And he said, and then when I get up, I don't realize I've lost four hours. It's an addiction and, he, and, and they can't quit. You ask the adulterer who is living with guilt and he's always looking over his shoulder wondering if their spouse has figured it out. Sin never leads to liberty. It always leads to bondage. It requires our mental efforts. Matter of fact, if you think about this in general, you consider society, people who are constantly involved in sin are constantly focused on their sins. Consider our culture today. There are those who are literally out having demonstrations. There are those who are out getting petitions for the approval of their sin. There are even those who are out lobbying to have laws changed to not only condone their sin, but to make it hate speech or illegal for you to come and say, hey, you shouldn't do that, it's wrong. Why? That's all they are focused on is their sin. It's their sin. They want to do it, they want to carry it out, and they want you to be okay with it, right? That's all that their mind is thinking about. 
Listen to Psalms 36, 4. He, decide, he, de, he deviseth mischief upon his bed. He setteth himself in a way that is not good. He aborteth not evil. Aborth, aborth not, what does that mean? It means to not refuse or to not cast away. He doesn't refuse evil. He doesn't cast away evil. As a matter of fact, this person is in bondage to evil. That's all they think about. That's what they want to do. And again, in our culture today, what are they? They're out having demonstrations. They're getting petitions. They're, they're lobbying the government to make it perfectly fine. And that's so that you can't say anything about it. And if you do, they can charge you for hate speech. And you guys might say it's, it's not that extreme. It is. It is in certain countries, guys. Uh, it's getting really bad to what we can say. Like, like I said, we might even get banned on, on YouTube for some of the things that we've said. I'm surprised we haven't yet. Proverbs 6.12. Uh, I'm going to read from the MLV version again here. A worthless person, a man of wickedness, is he who walks with a perverse mouth, who winks with his eyes, who speaks with his feet, who makes signs with his fingers, in whose heart is perverseness, who devises evil continually, who sows discord? That's somebody whose life, their whole life, just permeates uh, around sin. When you begin to talk about sin and permeating through a lifestyle, guys, we see this within the church. Uh, I've asked this question before. For those who have been attending here for quite a while, if you look around at the seats around you, do you guys see people missing right now? Where are they at? Why are they not here? Sin begins to permeate throughout a person's lifestyle. And it begins to be seen in their daily activities or the refusal of some of their normal activities. Let's go over to Proverbs 7. I'm going to describe a person here where we've actually got two people in this account. Both of them are permeating sin. One, you may say, is foolishness, however... Very quickly on, if it was foolishness, it got to the point where it's no longer foolishness. This is, a, this is a person who is allowing sin to permeate through their lifestyle. I'm going to read from verse 6 down to 27. And that's quite a, quite a lengthy passage, but let's play it all the way out. Let's see what sin does to a person and how it uh, is seen throughout their life. Proverbs 7, starting in verse 6. For at the window of my house, I looked through my casement window and beheld among the simple ones. I discerned among the youths. A young man void of understanding, passing through the street near her corner. And he went the way to her house in the twilight, in the evening, in the black and dark night. And behold, there met him a woman with the attire of an harlot and subtle of heart. She is loud and stubborn. Her feet abide not in her house. Now is she without, now in the streets, and lieth in wait at every corner. Let me pause for a minute. Why is she lying in wait at the corner? She's trying to catch something. She's trying to catch something, and here he's described as one without understanding. He's going to understand pretty quick. Let's keep going. Verse 13, So she caught him and kissed him, and with an impudent face said unto him, I have, I have peace offerings with me this day. I have paid my vows. Therefore came I forth to meet thee, diligently to seek thy face, and have found thee. I have decked my bed with coverings of ta tapestry, with carved works, with fine linen of Egypt. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh and aloes and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love until the morning. Let me pause for a minute. <laughs> All she's offering is a one-night commitment, okay? So far, the deal's not looking very good. She's trying to catch prey. She's now put the snare out. Let's see the response. Let us solace ourselves with loves. 
For the good man, that's her husband. My husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He hath taken a bag of money with him, and he will come home at the day appointed. What's she saying? We're not going to get caught. He's gone. He took money. He's going to be gone for a while. What's she laying out for the trap? Nobody's ever going to know. She keeps going, keep going here. With her much fair speech, she caused him to yield. That's not a good decision. With the flattering of her lips, she forced him. Okay. He goeth after her straightway as an ox goeth to the slaughter, or as a fool to the correction of the stocks, till a dart strike through his liver, as a bird hasteneth to the snare, and knowing that it is, it is for his life. Hearken unto me now, therefore, O ye children, and attend to the words of my mouth. Let not thine heart decline to her ways. Go not astray in her path, for she has cast down many wounded. This isn't a one-time thing, guys. This permeates in her whole lifestyle. She's lying. She's being unfaithful. She's causing other people to sin. And granted, uh, she couldn't force him to do anything, so he's, he's participating. It says, Many strong men have been slain by her. Her house is the way to hell, going down to the chambers of death. Yeah, in this account, we have the female who is the one who is enticing, and he is more than happy to submit. In other accounts, we have the male who is doing the same thing. It works both ways. You guys ever notice that people who are involved in sin don't usually want to be involved in sin by themselves? They want to drag somebody down with them. Guys, before I was a Christian and I look at who I, who I was and who I associated with, I didn't want to do anything by myself. I wanted my buddies to come do it with me. You're committing sin. Sin loves company. And here's the scary part. With enough company, it's no longer even called sin. It becomes normal. Society looks at it as normal. And then when someone stands up and says, hey, you shouldn't be doing that, well, now you're the odd one because so many are doing it. For you to say something makes you the minority. And yet, in all of these types of situations, whatever the sin is, the follower of Christ is to deny himself. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 16, 24 through 25. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. Now, let's go over to John 8, 34, and notice what Jesus says here. And this oftentimes is not what is on your mind when you decide to commit whatever that sin may be. Jesus answered them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. Yeah. It always asks a whole lot more than you, and it ends up ultimately placing you in bondage. And again, if you don't believe that's true, and you don't, and you don't believe it's going to result in consequences, go back and ask the adulterer. Go back and ask the alcoholic. Go back and ask the thief, whoever it is. Right? Let me give you just an example. The consequences of sin, they're always carried out. And yet at many times, people, they don't even see it right in front of their eyes. Let me give you the deceit of alcohol. Uh, alcohol is a very prevalent um, beverage. I know that in my secular workplace, virtually everyone that I work with drinks alcohol, right? I'm called the teetotaler. Uh, uh, my, the bosses that I work with, they're all, they all drink alcohol. Some go out after work, some pick it up on the way home, whatever it is. And you ask them why they do it. Well, <laughs> it calms me down. It makes things better. Listen to the deceit of alcohol for our uh, especially for the younger ones here who may not have been around people who do this. 
Uh, I know that I don't want to be around intoxicated people. Proverbs 23, verses 31 through 35. And I say that because I grew up in a household where that was the norm. Look not thou upon the wine when it is red, when it giveth its color in the cup, when it moveth itself all right. At the last it biteth like a serpent and stingeth like an adder. Thine eyes shall behold strange women, and thine heart shall utter perverse things. Let me pause for a minute. Yeah, you're going to make an awful lot of uh, decisions that don't seem to make a whole lot of sense. And that's because you don't have your senses about you. Verse 34, Yea, thou shalt be as he that lieth down in the midst of the sea, or as he that lieth upon the top of a mast. Now, if you've not been around people intoxicated, if you've watched TV, you've seen them, right? It's like they're on the top of the mast on the sea. They can't get their feet underneath them. They're all wobbly. Verse 35, they've stricken me. You've seen people intoxicated laying on the street, right? Same thing with people, drug use. They're laying on the street. They're, they can't control their bodily functions. They can't control themselves. They can't even walk. They have stricken me, shalt thou say, and I was not sick. They have beaten me, and I felt it not. Now notice this. When shall I awake? I will seek it yet again. Yeah, sin gives less and less and less each time you do it, and each time it requires more and more and more. And that's, again, why many of these sins are addictive in nature. The pleasure becomes less and less, but the bondage becomes stronger and stronger, and so you have to continue to do whatever, whatever it is to get the same fulfillment that you used to get. Listen to Proverbs 3, verses 3 through 4. Let not mercy and truth forsake thee. Bind them about thy neck. Write them upon the table of thine heart, so shalt thou find favor and good understanding in the sight of God and man. What exactly is he saying here? Well, again, he's making it very clear to us we're not to forfeit or forsake the truth of God. But he says this. He says, bind them about your neck. Why would he say that? Why would he say to bind God's truth around your neck? Think for just a second, guys. What do you put around your neck? Not a noose. We're talking about something else. Daily wear. What do you put around your neck? I think oftentimes you'll find people who are wearing ornate, beautiful jewelry around their neck. And that's what he's saying here is let God's law be seen upon you as a beautiful ornament. Living and seeking after the will of God, seeking after His mercy, that's the greatest honor that you could ever have. And to wear that truth around your neck, what he's saying is, is have it right in front of everybody so they can see that. Let that be the ornament in your life. That is the greatest honor that would be capable in this world. And it's the complete opposite of living in a life, living a life where I'm constantly indulging in sin, constantly doing the complete opposite of what we would find the Bible teaching. And again, that's logical to us, not so much to those maybe who are not Christians. Sin ultimately rewards in death. That's, that's the best that you're going to get from it. You might get a little bit of pleasure for a uh, time being, uh, but in the end, when it rewards, it's going to reward in death. Romans 6, 23, For the wages of sin, when we say wages, wages are what I earn when I work, right? What I earn from sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now James, he tries to bring it to a very personal level. James 1, 14 and 15, this is our last verse. James says this, and he tries to bring sin to a very personal level. And for each of us, we need to have an understanding of what he's saying here. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust 
and enticed. Let me pause for one second because I'm almost done. Alex said my sermon was on the light side. I didn't go through and light, uh, list all of, the, all of the commands of God that we could break. Uh, and I didn't try to list all the sins. And here's the thing. It depends on each of us individually. I think I pointed this out a few weeks ago. You need to know what your, what your temptation is. You need to know where you currently struggle. You need to know where you need to ask for help. I could go back and cover a bunch of sins and people in here would be going, I don't struggle with that. I don't struggle with that. Maybe one person is, but the rest of them aren't. You need to know what your sin is. James says that's what's going to cause you to be drawn away, whatever your sin is. He says, then when lust hath conceived, whatever your issue is that you're after, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Very quick sermon to me. Very quick sermon on the basics of sin. What exactly is sin? Is, is there a reality, an absolute of sin? Absolutely, yes. There's different types of sin. We covered that. It does require something and will always require something of me, and it ultimately will end in bondage. It never ends up as anything good, and it will ultimately end with a consequence. It is real. It's based on an absolute standard. It always requires something of the individual, and yet... The only consequence or the ultimate consequence that you'll get from it is nothing but death and pain. And so, yes, many people will look at things within the Bible and they'll say, I don't see a problem with it. And again, we can't make anybody do anything. But we can go around and give the basic knowledge and understanding of what sin is, how it's carried out, and what the consequences are. I know that for us as Christians, this is a quick review lesson here. Guys, you have to remember we are surrounded we are surrounded by the majority of people who have never had a basic breakdown on what sin is, the dangers of sin, and the ultimate consequence of sin. I pray that each of us have a better understanding and that we can easily explain this to someone else. As I draw this to a close, that's my concern. Are you, one, a Christian? If you're here and you are saying, I'm not a Christian, uh, very simply, if you go back and look at your Bible and look at all the conversion accounts, it was as simple as this. You had somebody who was going around and teaching who Jesus was, why He came, why He shed His blood, and the idea was to bring faith, Hebrews 11:6. Jesus says, if you don't believe that I am He, you're going to die in your sins, John 8, 24. So they needed to have an understanding of who Jesus was and why He came. They needed to have an understanding of sin and the consequence of sin. Romans 3, 23 and 6, 23, we've already looked at that. All people have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The consequence is death. And so they need to have an understanding of Jesus, why He shed His blood, so they'll repent of their sins. Luke 13, 3 and 5, Acts 17, 30. And then ultimately we'll confess Christ, Romans 10, 9 and 10, and then be immersed in water for the remission of sins. That's how you were added to the church. Jesus tells you to do it. Uh, Mark 16, 15 and 16, we're told that it saves. Galatians 3, 26 and 27 is how you get into Christ. It saves, 1 Peter 3, 21. The lists go on and on. That's how people obeyed the gospel. If you're watching this online and you haven't done that, you haven't obeyed the gospel, call us. We'll study with you. We'll set you up with a faithful congregation. If you're here and you've not done that, you've not obeyed the gospel, there's not a clearer way to say it. You need to become a Christian. And then, the hard part, live faithfully till you die. For that to happen, you need to know what sin is, and you need to be on the lookout. If there's a way that we can assist you in any way this morning, you can come forward as we're led in the song of invitation.